Sorry. There we go. All right. I hope I projected well enough before. <laughs> awesome. Well, now that, uh, now that you can actually hear me and hear me well, last week we went over that part of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. And we said that that is the rubric to understand all of Jesus' ministry, but in particular, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This week will actually be uh, coming down from the Mount and going into Capernaum. And this is right after the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus begins his work in Capernaum. And today we're going to be looking at his healing of the centurion's servant. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for giving us this day of worship and of rest, for giving us a day that we could turn our gaze toward you and put down our earthly cares so that you might refresh us and build us up. Lord, it is a beautiful thing that you have ordered us to take this time to take this time for our own good so that we could find our center in Jesus again and again every week. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for calling us here. Jesus, you are our great salvation. Okay, and you, you brought that salvation about with your work on earth, living our life for us fulfilling the law for us and dying a death in our place, making it possible even to come and worship the Lord, restoring us into the family of God, and we thank you. We praise you for that. Lord, you promised in, in John that you would send the Holy Spirit to us and that the Holy Spirit would come and that he would guide us into all truth, and that is what we ask now. Holy Spirit, we ask that your presence be here with us, that it be very palpable, that we feel you, and that you illumine our minds and illumine our hearts, direct our gaze to our great Savior as we study this amazing passage in Matthew. Amen. So, like I said, today we're going to be studying uh, the passage in Matthew, the healing of the centurion's servant. And part of that, we're really going to be not talking about the healing so much, though that is a big part of the story, but we're going to be talking about faith. We're going to be talking about what faith is. There are a lot of misconceptions today about what faith is. We, we don't really... Honestly, most of us have a firm grasp on what faith is. It's kind of a nebulous concept, a little esoteric. It's a, it's a spiritual thing, and we, we don't really know. And in fact, there are even some people, believe it or not, that contrast things like faith and science or faith and reason. And they say, perhaps, well, I am a man of science. I believe in science. You are a man of faith. You don't believe in that. 
They say things like, I believe in evolution because of facts and logic and reason. And you believe in creation because you believe in a silly God that created everything. That's a loose paraphrase of somebody that I won't mention. And even that, even that, that accusation just kind of misconstrues the nature of faith. It's a complete wrong-headed look at what faith is in general and what saving faith is in particular. We could clean it up. You know, we get the concept from it, you know, just kind of intuitively. We understand what that person means, but to make it more accurate, we would really have to say, I have faith in science, whereas you have faith in God. And that really gets kind of at the heart of the issue. Faith is more about what you trust and less about some spiritual thing. So what is faith? And importantly for us, what is saving faith? That's what we're going to be talking about today. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Jesus. He has just delivered his Sermon on the Mount, and he has come down, and he has gone into Capernaum, and he says, Matthew says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But God's word stands forever. Let us turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So like I said, we're going to be looking at what faith is, and in particular what faith means for a Christian. What is saving faith? For us, And we're going to be looking at it uh, from three different spots here in the text. We're going to be looking at the centurion's faith. We're going to be looking at Jesus' response to his faith. And then we're going to be looking at the nature of saving faith itself. So, the centurion's faith. So who was the centurion? You know, Matthew doesn't actually tell us very much. Um, 
we don't get a lot of information about who this man is, just that he is a centurion. Now, what was a centurion? A centurion is a commander of, in the Roman army, and he commanded a hundred soldiers. And he would have had a garrison in the city of Capernaum. This is what Rome did. They would, they would garrison a number of soldiers in every little city so that they could exert their power and exert their rule and actually keep the peace in the region. And he was the leader of the people. He was the leader of all those soldiers. He was running that garrison. So, at first blush, it would kind of seem strange then, one, that he would be so concerned for his servant. You know, why would he be concerned for a mere servant? You know, Romans were not known, especially Roman centurions were not known for their compassion. Why, why would he care so much? And then, after that, you just, you have to ask the question, why did he go to Jesus? How did he even enter his mind to go to Jesus? So, when we think about the servant, now, part of the centurion's job that we know about just from all of the history that we've learned is that this was a lonely job. It was, it was a job that um, was very rough, very hard. The people who were in this position, um, they could not have family. They were supposed to be married to their work. They couldn't have wives. They couldn't have children. And since they had to be commander over soldiers that they might send to their death, they couldn't really have friends, at least not friends in close quarters. And so the servant here, we, we think of servants as kind of, well, servants, butlers. But this would have been his butler. It would have been his person who ran his household. And this, honestly, would have been the person that he would have had the most contact with day to day. He would have developed a friendship with him because he's the only person around that he could really be friends with. He's the only person around that he could develop this close friendship and brotherly love and affection for. And so, that's the servant. And that's why he's motivated to actually go to Jesus. He's motivated because his dear friend, who is his servant, is in distress. He's been paralyzed. In Luke, we learn that he's about to die. But how in the world does he even know to go to Jesus? That's strange. Because... He's a Roman. He's a Roman citizen. He's a Gentile. You don't expect Gentiles to go running to Jewish prophets. You don't expect Gentiles to go running to Jewish healers. In fact, most Romans really believed that all of this was superstition. So how did it even occur to him? Desperation, maybe? I think maybe. But, you know, he actually seems a lot more respectful in the account uh, than 
we could really account for otherwise. You know, if you are in a position of authority in Rome, you know, you summon people and they come. That's how, that's how it works. You don't go to them meekly. You don't go to them and say, please, will you hear my, heal my servant? And by the way, you're not actually, I'm not worthy for you to enter my house. That's not how you would behave. No. Besides, Jesus commends him for his faith. He actually goes even farther and says that he marvels at his faith. This is a person with strong faith, strong enough that Jesus himself would marvel at his faith. So how does a Gentile know God and have faith? Well, fortunately, this isn't the only record of this story. We actually have another record in Luke. It's Luke chapter 7, and I won't read all of it. We'll read verses 3 through 7 real quick. He gives us quite a bit more insight with just a few more details. Luke says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to come to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. This picture that we get in Luke is much fuller, a much fuller picture of the centurion than we get in, in Matthew. Matthew kind of glosses over the facts that of how the centurion is communicated with G communicating with Jesus. And, you know, that might actually seem odd to us. You know, people point this out sometimes as a contradiction in the Bible. It's not really a contradiction. Back in that time, if you were in a position of authority and you sent somebody to represent you, it was your words that they were hearing. And it was equally valid to say that you went to them rather than your servants went to them or the elders went to them. So that's really not much of a problem. But it does seem odd that he sent the elders. He knew the elders. And the elders knew him. The elders loved him, respected him. They told Jesus, he's worthy to have you do this to him, for him, because he loves our nation. He built our synagogue. And the picture that we get of the centurion is this man of faith. Now, there were Gentiles back then that were men of faith. They were called God-fearers. They hadn't actually taken the full step to come into Judaism, but they had started worshiping Yahweh. And the Jews called them God-fearers. And this is likely who he is. He is somebody who has fallen in love, fallen in love with God and fallen in love with his people. 
more than that, he's, he's meek and he's humble. The elders tell, tell Jesus that he's worthy to have Jesus heal his servant. But that's not his, that's not his opinion. In fact, he didn't even feel worthy enough to go to Jesus himself. It's kind of like he's apologizing there, that he's saying, I would have come to you myself, but I, I can't stand in your presence. I'm not worthy to be there. And it goes beyond that. You're not, I'm not even worthy to have you enter my house. Just say the word and heal my servant. He says, then, if we go to verse 9 in Matthew, that he knows how authority works. For I too, he says, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, why do I mention that? You know, part of answering why he went to Jesus is who, who did he think Jesus was? Why did he think Jesus was actually able to help him? Well, this actually goes quite a ways to answering what his view of Jesus was. If we know that he's a God-fearer, that he loves God, and we know also that he's treating Jesus as if he's a soldier in God's kingdom, more than a soldier, a commander like him. His view may not be full of who Jesus is, he probably doesn't actually think that Jesus is the Messiah. He might, but he might not. He definitely doesn't know that Jesus was the Son of God. Nobody really knew that at this time. Jesus' ministry had just started. No, he viewed Jesus as a prophet. He viewed Jesus as God's man. And when he was going to Jesus for healing, he was not just going to Jesus. He was actually, in his mind, petitioning God, will you heal my servant? He was looking beyond Jesus the man, beyond him, and he was looking to God as the authority empowering Jesus. That was his view. He had everything that the Pharisees had, all the info that the Pharisees had. And his faith, his faith was not in Jesus as a mere miracle worker, not in Jesus as a mere prophet, but as a representative of God on earth from whom God's authority would flow. And if Jesus said that his servant was healed, it would be done. And that was his faith. What a faith. What a great faith. It's an amazing faith. So what is Jesus' response to that? Let's read again in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled to those who followed him. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping, and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. 
the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus' response here is pretty layered. Okay, there are a lot of elements to it. And the first one, really, that we see is that he marveled at the centurion's faith. Now, why did he marvel at his faith? Was it that he was surprised at the man's faith? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine. And so, he knows whenever he meets anybody, and I'm guessing, even their representatives, he knows where their heart stands. So, he knows that this man has faith. He's not astounded by the faith so much. It didn't catch him off guard, that is. It's more that no one would expect a Gentile to have such strong faith because no one in Israel had such strong faith. He knew the weak faith of the Jews. They were his people, his people that he was going to, and he knew their weak faith. And it's it is weird, we might think, that a Gentile would have such strong faith compared to them. Why was the centurion's faith something to marvel at? Why did he marvel at it? One, it was that he was strong again, though the centurion probably didn't know exactly who Jesus was. He did know that Jesus was God's man on earth, like I said. He did know that any healing that happened would be from God's hand. He did know that God was the authority behind everything that happened. Contrast this with how many of the Jews react to Jesus as he heals them, as they come to him for healing. If we look through the Gospels, we see again and again, they, they treat him more as a miracle worker, more as a magic man than as a savior. More of a miracle worker and a magic man than a prophet and a man of God. We see this vividly in Luke 8. Luke 8 tells, uh, tells the tale of Jesus who has been summoned to Jairus' house. And he needs to heal Jairus' daughter because Jairus' daughter is about to die. And while he's on his way, uh, the crowds are thronging around him and pushing in, and it's hard for him to get through, and they kind of slow down his progress. And while that happens, some lady who has been bleeding from the same wound for 12 years creeps up to him, and she's thinking in her mind, if I just touch his cloak, if I just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. She's treating him like he's a magic talisman. She goes to Jesus. But her faith is weak, very weak. We see it again in John, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 6, verse 26. This is on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So Jesus goes out, he uh, delivers some sermons and teaching, and they're in the wilderness, and he feeds 5,000 people. And then the day ends, he goes across the sea. They go and find him the next day. And when they find him, this is what Jesus says to him. 
Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What is he saying there? He's saying, you saw the miracles. You saw the miracle of the loaves that I did, but you didn't see it for a miracle. You didn't see it for actually what it was signifying, what it was meaning. You didn't see the purpose behind the miracle. You didn't actually see it. No. The reason why you came back is just because you want to get fed again. You just want to see the miracle again. You just want bread. Weak faith. Weak faith, especially compared to the strong faith of the centurion. Now, it's weak. It's, it's not non-existent, though. You know, the woman with the bleeding disorder, she was healed. Jesus healed her. Weak and mixed with superstition, though her faith was, he healed her. And what does he say to her afterwards? He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Her faith, weak, was enough. So we have the strong faith of, this, <clears throat> of the centurion. We have the weak faith in general of the people of Israel. And then we also here have the faithless people of Israel. And it's not really that they have no faith, just like the atheist at the beginning, okay, that I was referencing. It's not that they have no faith. It's really just that they have faith in the wrong thing. Let's read again verses 11 and 12. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus here is foretelling the influx of the Gentiles of which the centurion seems to be one of the forerunners. And he's saying that there is a time that's coming and it's coming soon where the Gentiles are going to come in to the family of faith. That they are going to come to faith in me. And then he goes on in verse 12. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Why? Well, because the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the Jews following after their, their leadership, they put their faith in their heritage and not God. The scribes and, and Pharisees are actually confronted on this very point Several times throughout Scripture, I'll mention two of them. One is by John the Baptist, and it's earlier in the book of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 3, and John the Baptist says, Don't think, this is a paraphrase, by the way, JPV, Jason Paraphrase Version. Don't think that you will be saved because you are sons of Abraham. God can raise up from these very stones sons of Abraham. Keep works in keeping with repentance. And in John chapter 8, Jesus 
he actually has a, a, another altercation with the Pharisees. And he says, you know, um, I don't really think that you are, are Abraham's children. And they say, well, we're descended from Abraham. We are Abraham's children. And he says, no, if you were Abraham's children, you would actually be doing the works that your father Abraham did. No. In fact, your father is probably Satan. That's how he responds to them. This very charge that they are putting their heritage over faith in God. They were looking to something other than God to save them. And those who simply see themselves as sons of the kingdom here, they won't be saved because they have no proper faith in God. They have no true faith in Him and in His promises and in the fulfillment of them. So what is saving faith? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it like this. It says, what is faith in Jesus Christ? This is question 86. If you want to look it up sometime. It says, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for our salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. And there's a lot in there, but that's, that's a concise, condensed definition of what saving faith is. But I hear you saying, but, but Jason, the centurion, he had faith. How can you say that he had faith in Jesus when you also say that he didn't really know who Jesus was? And that's because salvation has always been by grace, through faith, in the coming Messiah. In the Old Testament time, from Genesis 3.15 and onward, in Genesis 3.15, God promises that a Savior is coming. Somebody is coming that is going to roll back the curse, that's going to crush the snake, and he is going to ultimately put everything back to right. A Savior is coming. And people in the Old Testament were saved by their faith in that coming Savior. And that is the faith that the centurion had. The faith in the coming Savior, even though he didn't understand that Jesus was the Savior. You have to have faith in Jesus. And the next part of it is that it's a saving grace. What does that mean? It means it's not something that we do on our own. It's not something that we can merit. Nobody can merit it. It is a grace of God. It is a given by Him as a gift. That saving faith isn't something that we can generate ourselves. It's wholly a gift. And the next part, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone, we can only rest upon Jesus. There's nothing else that we can rest upon. There's nothing else that we can set our faith on, set our hope on, 
We have to set it on Jesus. And this was one of the problems with the Pharisees. They were not resting his hope on him, not on the coming Messiah. They were resting their hope on their heritage, on the fact that they were part of this people called the people of God. That's what they were resting their hope on. Nothing else. No. For saving faith, you have to rest your hope on Jesus. There is no other way. For salvation. That's the next part of this. For salvation. Part of saving faith is understanding that you actually need to be saved. You're putting your hope, putting your faith, putting your trust in Jesus, you are resting upon him and him alone for salvation. And the only way that you can do that is understanding that you need salvation. You need to be saved, which means that you aren't worthy to be in the kingdom, and you know that. Tim Keller actually Uh, He has a quote, and I I couldn't find it. I was listening to one of his sermons several years ago, and I should have written down the quote, but I didn't. And I did a Google search, and I couldn't find it. But again, JPV, this is kind of how it goes. If you think you're worthy to be there, then you're not. If you actually think you're worthy to be in the kingdom on your own merits, you're not worthy. It is only the people who realize that they are not worthy to be in the kingdom that actually ever get admitted to the kingdom. No. As he is offered to us in the gospel. How is he offered to us in the gospel? How is Jesus offered? He's offered to us as the savior of the world, as our salvation, as the propitiation of our sins, as the sacrificial lamb that does away with all of the stains of our own sinfulness on our souls, that cleanses us completely and presents us before God. He's the savior of the world and he is the undoer of the curse. That is how he is offered in the gospel. And all of that is saving faith. And that's the faith that the centurion had that Jesus was marveling at. It was a faith that began with God's mercy, God's mercy and grace. And because it is God who gave him the gift of faith and moved him to exercise his faith by going to Jesus, who in his mercy and grace rewarded his faith by healing his servant. That is why Jesus marveled, and that is a perfect, pure example of saving faith. If you know how to look at it. So the question becomes, what about you? What about me? What about us? Where is our faith at? Do you have the faith like the centurion? Are you resting on Jesus alone for your salvation? Have you put your trust in him? Or have you put your trust in something else? Have you put your faith in something else to save you? You know, there's this haunting thing that Jesus says uh, in the Gospels, and it's this prediction about, about Judgment Day. 
And what he says is that many people, many people are going to come on judgment day and they're going to come before me and they're going to say, Jesus, I did so many works in your name. And he will say, away with you. I never knew you. Why? Because they had never put their faith in Jesus. They had never got to know him as their savior. Instead, they only put their faith in their own works. And there are many people alive today that do that, that put their faith in their own works rather than in the work of Christ. And they can only expect on Judgment Day that, <clears throat> that Jesus will turn them away. There are also a lot of people that are in church, hopefully not this church, I don't think in this church, but there are a lot of people that go to church every Sunday, and they think because they go to church every Sunday and they're part of this visible kingdom of God, that they will be saved. But again, they never put their faith in Jesus. They never trust him with their salvation. They never rest and rely upon him alone. Instead, they're resting upon their membership to a club. And that is bound to get them cast into the outer darkness, just like Jesus says here. Where is your faith? My guess is that many of us would actually say that we're somewhat in between. We're in between the, the completely faithless person who doesn't rest upon Jesus and the centurion that has, seems to have this live and lively and robust faith. And we probably more identify with that, that woman that approached Jesus in the crowd than anything else. And that's, that's fine. That's fine if that's where you are. But I'd encourage you, don't stay there. Don't stay there. Because what you are offered in Jesus is that he is not only the author of your faith, weak though it may be, but he is also the perfecter of your faith. He is the one who finishes it. He brings it to completion and builds it up. Don't stay with a weak faith. Don't be satisfied with that. That's a horrible existence. A horrible existence as a Christian. No. Make use of the means of God's grace. The means which he uses to build up faith in you. How does he do that? How does he do that? One of them is coming to church and listening to sermons. Hearing the word preached is a means of grace. Reading your Bible is a means of grace. Praying is a means of grace. Singing is a means of grace. They all go to building up your faith. Getting you one iteration closer to this strong, vibrant faith of the centurions. You have that promise in the Bible. You have that promise that Jesus himself is building your faith within you. If you can honestly look at yourself and say that you are one of the faithless, honestly, I would say congratulations because the faithless can't actually see that. If you see yourself as one of the faithless, Pray to our great Savior. 
pray for faith because he will save you. And the fact that you realize that you need salvation, the fact that you realize that you're in that camp, that means that he's already at work in you. If you happen to be more with the centurion, with that strong and vibrant faith, praise him for it. Praise him for it and ask him to grow it even farther. Help you learn who Jesus is better and better more and more every day. And that as you see him, you became, become more sure of your own salvation. It is Jesus who is at work in you and who is faithful to complete it. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do praise you that you are the author of our faith, that you are the perfecter of our faith, that you finish it out for us, and that our work is to merely rest, rest upon the salvation that has been given to us. Lord, we ask that in your Holy Spirit that you uh, awaken our hearts day by day to our own sinful desires that pull us away, pull us away from our Savior, that threaten to separate us from him. Awaken us to that, Lord. That way, we can actually turn to Jesus. And in turning to him, we may become more and more like him and be built up in our faith. Give us the firm conviction that if we are his, that there is nothing now that can separate us from his love. Nothing now that can get in between us, not even ourselves. Not our sin. Nothing. We are safe, we are secure.